you realize this is it. This is the last time we're going out in the field together with your fuzzy wandy wave at me. And my microphone too. <laughs> wow, 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 wow. <laughs> Are you gonna miss my bad jokes? Yes, <laughs> yes. Austin and I have spent a lot of time together. And one of our favorite things to do is to tell each other dad jokes. It sounds like your nose is running. So you better go catch it. Oh, God. Mama tomato, dad tomato, and baby tomato walking down the street. Dad tomato goes back, stomps on baby tomato, and says, catch up! <laughs> That's <laughs> good. <laughs> yeah, I love these jokes. So where are we going right now? We are going to visit the Coobs. We are on 23rd Street, walking in to the law offices of the one and only, the law slinger, Ron Kuby. <laughs> Why? Why are we going to see Kuby? Because I fucking am obsessed with him and I want more. We're going into Ron Kuby's office to interview him about his life and the cases that he's worked on to get a little bit more of the Kubes because the Kubes is the man and he's a great storyteller. Please knock loudly. Hey! Let's go! How are you? Oh, hey, how Austin, how are you, man? I'm good. See you. Where would you be most comfortable, Ron? In a hammock. <laughs> <laughs> From Crime Town, I'm Io Tillett Wright, and this is a special bonus episode of The Ballad of Billy Balls. Hey, Io Runkoopy. Hey, how are you? Good. So where is Billy Balls buried now? <laughs> Just send me all that shit and I'll try to get something out in the next few days. I, oh, I won't... wait, what, what do you mean? You get sent I, uh, something back uh, to the NY? I, I didn't intend what, to what cause work for you. is to submit a fresh foil. Um, my office will do that. I'm pleased to report that Zeno's paradox has been resolved and the arrow indeed has hit the target. The NYPD has sent us a, a, a tranche, if you will, of records. Do you think there's any possibility that Billy didn't have a gun? Yes, but there's nothing to support that theory and everything to support the notion that the cop is telling the truth. Epilogue three, The Law Slinger. So come on in. Yeah, thanks for having us, Ron. Yeah, yeah. Party never ends. Ron's wearing uh, a floral Hawaiian shirt and shorts and no shoes. We follow a barefoot Ron into his conference room and start talking. Can you tell me about where you come from and how you came to law a little bit? Mm. Can I ask you yes or no questions that I read on the internet? Um, yes. 
Is it true that you lived in a commune when you were a teenager? Yes. <laughs> Is it true that you worked on a tugboat in St. Croix? Yes. <laughs> Ron didn't want to talk about growing up in Cleveland, Ohio. But in 1974, when he was 17, he found himself on St. Croix in the U.S. Virgin Islands. I was on my way to California from Ohio. I was going, I was never really good in geography. I, <laughs> he went down to visit a friend. And he had a beautiful, to me, beautiful beach house. And it was right next to what was then a Calypso bar. This is like, to me, paradise. Beach, bar, beach, bar, beach, bar. And I don't even have to put shoes on. I mean, it all worked. I got a job on a tugboat. And it was like filled with all these old West Indian seamen who were always brewing these weird teas from plants and stuff. And I would, you know, trying to make conversation because we didn't have a lot in common, as you might imagine. So I got interested in herbal teas and herbal medicine and West Indian medical systems and stuff. At this point, Ron's 18. He's spending his days learning about medicinal plants on a tugboat and then coming home to the beach drinking and getting high and hanging out. <coughs> then he met a girl. I fell in love with her. She fell in love with me. She left to go to Maine. And Ron followed. But he soon learned a bit more about his sweetheart. Sort of discovered that she had slept with pretty much every guy and a substantial chunk of the women in South Portland, which didn't bother me except for the fact that I kept bumping into them all everywhere. And it's like, hi, yeah, you too, cool. <laughs> Ron decided to get out of there and go to college in Kansas. I was at the University of Kansas, great Midwestern institution. Where he studied anthropology focusing on those medicinal plants that he learned about on the tugboat in St. Croix. African traditions and Spanish West Indian traditions. And he's not shy about how well he did. Yeah, I had a 4-0 average and all this other shit, so I, I, I was the best anthropology student they had seen in a fucking generation. I mean, I just was. So when a faculty committee turned him down for a big fellowship, he was shocked. And so I'm, I'm walking to the bar... And I bumped into the head of the committee. And I said, hey, what happened? Why didn't I get recommended? And he said, the committee didn't like your attitude. So I, I asked, what was wrong with my attitude? And, and he said, they found you condescending and arrogant. <laughs> Okay, fine. Went to the bar, told the bartender, and he said, you know, you ought to go to law school. They like people like that there. <laughs> I wasn't doing anything else that I had nothing scheduled for my future. <laughs> no. So I thought, yeah, that's not a bad idea. Maybe I should. While in law school at Cornell, 
Ron began interning with one of the most famous civil rights lawyers in the country, William Kunstler. William Kunstler defended the Chicago 7 and counted Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X among his clients. There is no credibility in government. It was all lies to justify wanton, cold-blooded murder. Public officials who sanction and condone mass murder must themselves be indicted by a civilized society. The first summer of Ron's internship, this is now 1982, Kunstler was defending two men in a murder trial, James York and Anthony Laborde. York and Laborde were two former Black Panthers who had gotten pulled over for a bad taillight by two police officers. And, you know, both officers approached the car in a simple traffic stop. York and Laborde uh, allegedly came out shooting. One of the police officers died. The other was shot many times, but survived. And so it was a very, 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 very high-profile trial. And there were going to be opening statements, and there was going to be a lot of media coverage. And I'm just carrying Bill's briefcase. Bill and young intern Ron head off to a courthouse in Queens for opening statements. We're going to the subway, and I bend over for something, or Bill drops a paper, and I bend over, and my pants rip. Right along the middle seam, crotch to ass. And it's like, I'm, I'm, I am now freaking out, okay? Like, I know Bill's concerned about the fate of two black political prisoners and going to prison for the rest of their lives and stuff like that, and I recognize that's all really important and shit, but I am, like, now... And there's going to be a lot of media there. And, and Bill looks at me in, in his way, and says, oh, it's fine. And then says the immortal words, uh, just don't let your cock flop out during my opening. <laughs> Might be one of the best stories I've ever heard in my life. Don't let your cock flop out during my opening. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not listed in quotes by William Kunstler in Brainiac or whatever that is, but, but they're words to live by. <laughs> Ron continued to work with Bill Kunstler, eventually becoming an unofficial partner in his law firm, and the two men were very close. He was my friend, my mentor, my teacher, um, my critic, a great guy to hang out with, guy who taught me everything that I know about lawyering. Um, and he was the guy probably most, most important in terms of my future career. I mean, all of those things were incredibly wonderful. But he was the guy who, who got me entree into a world and communities that otherwise would have been alien. With Kunstler, Kubi worked to defend people like the daughter of Malcolm X, associates of the so-called Gambino crime family, and members of the Hells Angels. So uh, the Ohio Hells Angels charter, Cleveland charter, called Kunstler's office, I think this was in 90, 1990, uh, three of their members were charged with a murder. Allegedly, I mean, according to the government, there were two people in Sandusky, Ohio, who drove yellow VW microbuses 
One of them was a large, heavyset, bearded member of the Outlaws Motorcycle Club with whom the Hells Angels had a long-standing disagreement. The other was a big, heavy-set, bearded, but utterly harmless record store clerk. Guess which one got killed? Yeah, record store clerk. So the feds took over the case and were making this a very big deal. And the Cleveland Charter of the Hells Angels called and asked if Kunstler would be interested in the case. You know, Bill said, great, you know. So we set a fee that was a lot of money by our standards then. And Kunstler sent me out to pick up the initial retainer or whatever it was, but, you know, basically put a face to the firm. Kubi flies into Cleveland, and awaiting him at the airport is an escort from the Hells Angels. Yeah, I get in the car with a giant guy who picks me up. Huge, like human armoire style. And a guy looks at me. He says, hey, are you Jewish? And like I'm processing this question really quickly, it's like, well, you know, my mother's Jewish, so Jews consider me a Jew, and I'd be a Jew under the Nuremberg laws, but I don't subscribe either the halacha or the Nuremberg laws, and I certainly don't believe in any God, so am I Jew? Right, rapid cycling. But, but I figured, you know, that was not the answer. So I said, yes. He says, I am too. Hey. <laughs> And we went first to get something to eat at Corky and Lenny's, which is a historic deli in Cleveland Heights, Ohio, where the Hadassah ladies would go and eat corned beef. And we walk in, this guy wearing his Hells Angels patch and me in my suit, and we bump into his aunt, who's sitting there with the Hadassah ladies. And she's like, so-and-so, how are you? This is my nephew. After what can only be assumed is a delightful lunch, Ron is driven to a meeting point to pick up the first installment of the payment. We go to a nondescript office where I meet some of the other guys, and uh, they give me the initial installment, which was $50,000, which was a lot of money at that time, and certainly more money than I had ever seen in my life. This is cash? Cash, yeah, yeah. Stacks of hundreds, wrapped up. So I have a briefcase, and I start loading the briefcase. The guy across the table from me says, aren't you going to count it? I said, no. It's 50,000, right? He said, yeah. I said, no, I'm not going to count it. Not because I trusted them, although I did, but because I'm not going to sit here with a bunch of people watching me 100, 200, 300, 400, 500, 600. I'm sorry, did I say 12,300 or was that 12,400? Yeah, no, not going to fuck around like this. So I started loading my briefcase. And somebody behind me says, there's been a change of plans. (laughs) 
So I turn around and there's this guy holding an AR-15 at my head. Oh, fuck. All right. So I look at him and I look at the gun and I look back to across the table to the person I'm dealing with, just sort of waiting. And what I'm thinking is, well, they certainly didn't invite me out here to steal their own money back and kill me, right? I mean, there's just no point to that. So I don't quite know what's going on, but I'll just sit here and wait for somebody to tell me the punchline. And they all start laughing and put the gun down. Hilarious. <laughs> I didn't get the joke. It just, it didn't make any sense to me. Oh my God. And what I didn't realize really until reflecting on it many years later was this was a gut check. This was their way of seeing if somebody pointed a gun at the guy who's going to be their lawyer, he would like shit in his pants. Oh, please don't shoot me. No, 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 that's a gun. Don't kill me. Don't kill me. No, 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 I have a daughter. And I passed. Not because I was brave, but because I was confused and bemused, which I guess was a perfectly acceptable substitute for courage. The scare tactic by the Hells Angels may have been a joke, but later in his career, Ron would face a different threat that was definitely real. Sammy the Bull Gravano wanted to murder you. <laughs> Hopefully the way you said it is accurate. Past tense. That's after the break. All right, so to get to the point where the law slinger, Ron Kuby, is receiving death threats from the mobster Sammy the Bull Gravano, we have to go back to 1992. Good evening. It's a guilty verdict that prosecutors hope breaks the back of organized crime in New York City. Gambino crime boss John Gotti and his co-defendant Frank Locasio guilty on a host of felonies that could John Gotti had avoided conviction in three previous trials. But then, his one-time underboss, Sammy the Bull Gravano, agreed to cooperate with the government and testify against him. The jury believed the government's star witness, mafia turncoat Salvatore Sammy the Bull Gravano, John Gotti's best friend and betrayer. As part of his deal, Gravano confessed to 19 murders and was placed in the witness protection program. But then... He might just be the most famous snitch of all time, but now Salvatore Sammy the Bull Gravano was planning to murder... New York City attorney, Ron Kuby. What happened was, so fairly short time after he was placed in the witness protection program, a woman came to me, a young woman whose father was murdered by Gravano. And she had put together like a loose group of people, almost always the youngest daughters of mob guys who had been killed by Gravano. 
I mean, he was responsible for, he took responsibility for 19 murders. Now, after time passed, the youngest daughters were pissed. And they were especially pissed that Gravano was looking as though he was going to profit by writing a book called Underboss. And so they came to me um, wanting to know if there was something they could do. So there are all these mob princesses walking in and out of my office, and it's like, okay, I'll take the case. They talked me into doing it. I called the press conference to announce the filing of the case at Gargiulio's restaurant in uh, Coney Island, old Italian place in Brooklyn. And everybody showed up. More cameras than I had ever seen in my life. Families came together for the first time today, fighting a book deal that could mean big money to Sammy the Bull Gravano. And I do remember thinking to myself, holy shit, you know, Innocent black man railroaded by corrupt cops, you know, two or three reporters. Unarmed black man killed by racist cops, maybe one camera, a couple local reporters. Wall of blondes, everybody. The FBI has wrapped Gravano up in the American flag and called him a hero. And we're here today to try to put an end to that. But that may be easier So I filed a case. And I, at that time, I had a radio show on WABC. I think it was Saturday mornings at that point. And I would talk about the case. Curtis Lewa, Ron Cooby, Curtis and Cooby. Boom! The arguments. He only tells us what he wants. This was around the year 2000. The show was called Curtis and Cooby. Ron and his co-host would talk and argue over current events and take calls from listeners. What I did not know about at that time was something called streaming audio. Yeah, I know. I just didn't know about it. But it was a thing. And it was a thing that Mr. Gravano had from his home in Arizona. He's still in the witness protection program? Well, at some point he had left. But that's not announced. And it wasn't so much the lawsuit that bothered him. It was like a lot of things I was saying about him personally. What did you say? What did I say? You know what? That's actually, that's on my tombstone. That's absolutely the one thing I want on my tombstone. Was it something I said? You don't have to say specifically. I'm not going to repeat the things that I said, but frankly, had I developed more judgment, which I eventually did, I would not have said them. There was no reason for me as a lawyer to personalize this case against him. But I did. And so he was listening and and was getting more and more and more pissed. Until eventually he decided that he was going to have me killed. And it was unclear exactly how, that is, the specific method that was going to be used. 
But the actual plan had been developed, as I found out, in some detail. He had dispatched one of his lieutenants, a guy named Pascucci, to have me killed in Texas. And the idea was that he would call the office and say, hey, uh, you know, my name's, you know, Joe, whatever, and, you know, I'm a friend of somebody who's locked up in Texas. He's heard about you, he wants to meet you. But the idea was I would fly down to Texas, I would be met at the airport, which, you know, people do. I mean, I did this in the Hells Angels. And so I was gonna fly down there and the guy picked me up and, and the only, as the Daily News put it, the only case I would get would be a case of lead poisoning. And I think that he did call, but I had made it a policy not to take cases in Texas after they executed one of my clients. I really didn't want to go back there. Uh, so I just you know, never responded. Then, when that didn't work, the next place they were going to have me killed my wife and daughter and I regularly, when she was little, went to, what's the happiest place on earth? Disneyland. Disney World. Oh, I've never been. I yeah, yeah, I used to go a lot when she was a little girl. They were gonna have me killed at Disney World. The happiest place on earth. It, I mean, again, nothing came of it, and there was no like plan whether you know he was gonna dress up as Goofy or something. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, happily in this case, law enforcement was like monitoring the whole thing, not that they bothered to give me a heads up, and um, arrested everybody involved, including Gravano. Uh, I found out about all of this after it happened. Um, it was a little creepy. There's a daily news. I made the cover of the Daily News with a really bad picture and, and the headline, One Mo Hit for Sammy. <laughs> That's insane. How, but besides just being creepy, I mean, did you feel any stronger feelings? Did you feel scared? Were you scared for your well, family? You, or? you, you know, you, it was all after the fact. You know, let, let's say you're walking down the street with your headphones on, not paying any attention, and a giant piano falls out the window right behind you. Yeah, I mean, holy shit, that could have killed me. But it didn't. You're so, safe. W would you, I mean, I would be more afraid of pianos falling out of windows then. Like, were you, did you think that maybe this wasn't over? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, but I also felt that, that Mr. Gravano, at that point, facing 20 years, had bigger fish to fry, so to speak, than me. Mr. Gravano's lawyer, I sort of reached out to her to reach out to him. I heard back that everything's fine. I know Mr. Gravano was released about a year ago. I think Mr. Gravano's happy to be out of prison. I think his family's happy he's out of prison. So hopefully everything's fine. Why do you do what you do? Why do you fight for the people that you fight for? I don't know. I know. I mean, I, I 
don't know anyone who sincerely knows how to answer that question because that requires a lot of, I think, deep understanding of personal motivation. Um, almost everybody dresses personal motivation in the clothes of doing good. And so I would need much more therapy than I'm interested in or that I have time for or I care about to unpack that. So I just don't anymore. Ron says he's got more important things to think about. Uh, I'm going to work on the case today, and I've got tickets to the Stones concert tonight. Yes. Thanks, Ron. Yep. Thank you, Ron. Thank you. The Law Slinger. It's a good name. It wasn't bad. Came up with it off the top of my head. I hope you're not going to the bathroom barefoot. Are you doing bare, barefoot bathroom, Ron? Oh my God, be careful. Oh God. One of, one of the things that I try to do <laughs> is to teach by example. And if enough guys see me standing there in the men's room by the urinal barefoot, they'll stop peeing on the floor. I, I believe- I don't think it works that way, but I have hope for you. Thanks, Ron. And thanks to everyone listening. I'll see you next week. Crime Town is Zach Stewart Pontier and Mark Smerling. The Ballad of Billy Balls is hosted by me, Io Tillett Wright, and made in partnership with Cadence 13. You can find me on the internet. I'm Io Loves You on Everything. And if you want to know more about my story, pick up my memoir, Darling Days. We have a voicemail set up for you to call us. Here's a message about the coobs we got this season. Ron Kuby is a cool motherfucker. If you'd like to leave us your own voicemail, please do. I love it so much. Give us a call at 570-392-9660. This episode was produced by me and Kevin Shepard. Our senior producer is Austin Mitchell. Editing by Zach Stewart-Pontier and Mark Smerling. This episode was mixed by Sam Baer. Music by Kenny Kusiak. Our title track is Dark Allies by Light Asylum. Thanks to Daniela Araya, Rachel Lee Wright, Emily Wiedemann, Green Card Pictures, Alessandro Santoro, Bill Clegg, Ben Davis, Oren Rosenbaum, the team at Cadence 13, and Andrew in San Francisco. And of course, my mom, without whom none of this would be possible. <laughs> <laughs>